Hello everyone and welcome to episode 16 of Intermediate English with me, Benjamin. A few months ago I recorded a short story, The Pendulum, by Ray Bradbury in an episode called A Prisoner of Time. I noticed recently that it's been quite popular amongst you, my listeners, and I thought that it might be time for another one. The story I'm reading to you today was written by the American author Jack London. It was first published in 1908, and it contains some autobiographical elements from the author's own travels around the Yukon River in Canada. Here in the Northern Hemisphere, the weather is starting to turn a bit colder. So I picked this story because it's a fascinating and sometimes frightening view of what it means to try to survive in the coldest parts of our planet. There are some old and unusual words in this passage. For a start, the author regularly refers to the imperial units which are used in America and in Britain, rather than the metric system which might be more familiar to you. I haven't changed any of these units, although I have made some changes to the vocabulary to make it slightly easier to understand. Still, This is a story that is over a hundred years old, and there are many aspects of it that are perhaps strange and unfamiliar to a 21st century English speaker. But I think it's important to confront yourself with all types of English, not just the English spoken and written today, but also a few short stories from the past. That's all from me, and I hope you enjoy the story. To Build a Fire by Jack London Day had broken, cold and grey, when the man turned aside from the main Yukon Trail and climbed the high bank. There, a dark trail led through the woodland, It was a steep bank, and he paused for breath at the top, looking at his watch. It was nine o'clock. There was no sun, though there was not a cloud in the sky. It was a clear day, and yet there seemed a gloom that made the day dark, and that was due to the lack of sun. This fact did not worry the man, He was used to the lack of sun. It had been days since he had seen the sun, and he knew that a few more days must pass before the sun would just peep above the skyline and dip immediately from view. The man flung a look back along the way he had come. The Yukon lay a mile wide and hidden under three feet of ice. On top of this ice, were three feet of snow. It was all pure white, rolling in gentle waves, north and south, as far as his eye could see, it was unbroken white, except for a dark line that curved and twisted to the south and away into the north, where it disappeared behind another island. 
This dark hairline was the trail, the main trail. But all this, the mysterious far-reaching hairline trail, the absence of sun from the sky, the tremendous cold, and the strangeness and weirdness of it all, made no impression on the man. It was not because he was used to it. He was a newcomer in the land, and this was his first winter. The trouble with him was that he was without imagination. He was quick and alert in the things of life, but only in the things and not in the significances. Fifty degrees below zero meant eighty degrees of frost. Such facts impressed him as being cold and uncomfortable, and that was all. It did not lead him to meditate upon his weakness as a creature of temperature and upon man's weakness in general, able only to live within certain narrow limits of heat and cold. And from there on, it did not lead him to the field of immortality and man's place in the universe. Fifty degrees below zero stood for a bite of frost that hurt and that must be guarded against by the use of gloves, ear flaps, and thick socks. Fifty degrees below zero was to him just precisely fifty degrees below zero. That there should be anything more to it than that was a thought that never entered his head. The temperature did not matter to him. He was going to Henderson Creek, where the boys were already. They had come over earlier, while he had taken a longer road to look at the possibilities of getting logs in the spring from the islands in the Yukon. He would be in camp by six o'clock, a bit after dark, it was true, but the boys would be there, a fire would be going, and a hot supper would be ready. As for lunch, he pressed his hand against the bundle under his jacket. It was also under his shirt, wrapped up in a handkerchief, and lying against the naked skin. It was the only way to keep the biscuits from freezing. He smiled to himself as he thought of those biscuits. He plunged in among the big spruce trees. The trail was faint. A foot of snow had fallen since the last sled had passed over, and he was glad that he was without a sled, travelling by foot. In fact, he carried nothing but the lunch wrapped in the handkerchief. He was surprised, however, at the cold. It certainly was cold, he concluded, as he rubbed his numbed nose and cheekbones with his gloved hand. He was a bearded man, but the hair on his face did not protect his high cheekbones and his eager nose. At the man's heels trotted a dog, a big native husky, the proper wolf-dog, grey-coated, and without any difference from its brother, the wild wolf. The animal was depressed by the tremendous cold. It knew that this was no time for travelling. Its instinct told it a truer tale than was told to the man by the man's judgment. In reality, it was not merely colder than 50 below zero, it was colder than 60 below, than 70 below. 
it was 75 below zero. The dog did not know anything about thermometers. Possibly in its brain there was no consciousness of cold such as there was in the man's brain. But the animal had its instinct. The dog had learned fire and it wanted fire or else to dig under the snow and cuddle its warmth away from the air. The frozen moisture of its breathing had settled on its fur in a fine powder of frost. The man's red beard and moustache were also frosted, but more solidly in the form of ice, and increasing with every warm, moist breath he exhaled. If he fell down, it would shatter itself like glass into tiny fragments. In a month, no man had come up or down this silent creek. The man held steadily on. He was not much given to thinking, and just then, particularly, he had nothing to think about, except that he would eat lunch at the fork in the river, and that at six o'clock he would be in the camp with the boys. There was nobody to talk to, and, had there been someone, speech would have been impossible because of the ice covering his mouth. Once in a while the thought appeared that it was very cold, and that he had never experienced such cold. As he walked along, he rubbed his cheekbones and nose with the back of his gloved hand. He did this automatically now and again changing hands. But rub as he would, the instant he stopped, his cheekbones went numb, and the following instant the end of his nose went numb. But it didn't matter much, after all. What were frosted cheeks? A bit painful, that was all. They were never serious. Empty as the man's mind was, he was keenly observant and he noticed the changes in the creek, the curves and bends, and always he sharply noted where he placed his feet. There were traps. The ice hid pools of water under the snow that might be three inches deep or three feet. Sometimes a thin skin of ice covered them, and in turn was covered by snow. Sometimes there were alternate layers of water and ice, so that when one broke through, he kept on breaking through for a while, sometimes wetting himself to the waist. Once he had felt the crack of ice under his feet. To get his feet wet in such a temperature meant trouble and danger. At the very least, it meant delay, for he would be forced to stop and build a fire, and under the fire's protection, to bare his feet while he dried his socks and shoes. He reflected for a while, rubbing his nose and cheeks, then stepped carefully, testing the footing for each step. Once clear of the danger, he continued on at his four-mile-an-hour pace. At twelve o'clock the day was at its brightest, yet the sun was too far south on its winter journey to rise above the horizon. 
At half past twelve, to the minute, he arrived at the forks of the creek. He was pleased at the speed he had made. If he kept it up, he would certainly be with the boys by six. He unbuttoned his jacket and shirt and drew forth his lunch. The action took no more than fifteen seconds, yet in that brief moment the numbness laid hold of the exposed fingers. He tried to take a bite of his lunch, but the ice in his beard prevented it. He had forgotten to build a fire and thaw out. He laughed at his foolishness, and as he laughed he noticed the numbness creeping into the exposed fingers. He strode up and down, stamping his feet and throwing about his arms until he was reassured by the returning warmth. Then he got out his matches and started to make a fire. Working carefully from a small beginning, he soon had a roaring fire over which he thawed the ice from his face and in the protection of which he ate his biscuits. The dog took satisfaction in the fire too, stretching out close enough for warmth and far enough away to escape being burned. This man did not know cold. Possibly all the generations of his ancestry had been ignorant of the cold, of real cold. But the dog knew, all its ancestry knew, and it had inherited the knowledge, and it knew that it was not good to walk outside in such fearful cold. It was the time to lie snug in a hole in the snow and wait for a curtain of cloud to be drawn across the face of outer space. There did not seem to be so many springs on Henderson Creek, and for half an hour the man saw no signs of any, and then it happened. At a place where there were no signs, where the soft, unbroken snow suggested solid ice underneath, the man broke through the ice. It was not deep, but he was wet halfway to the knees. He was angry and cursed his luck. He had hoped to get into the camp with the boys at six o'clock, but this would delay him an hour, for he would have to build a fire and dry out his footgear. This was essential at such a low temperature, he knew that much, and he turned aside to the bank, which he climbed. On top, he found dry firewood sticks and twigs, but also larger branches and fine grasses. He threw down several large pieces on top of the snow. This served for a foundation and prevented the young flame from drowning itself in the snow. The flame he got by touching a match to a small shred of bark that he took from his pocket. This burned even more quickly than paper. Placing it on the foundation, he fed the young flame with wisps of dry grass and with the tiniest dry twigs. He worked slowly and carefully, aware of his danger. Gradually, as the flame grew stronger, he increased the size of the twigs with which he fed it. He knew there must be no failure. When it is 75 degrees below zero, a man must not fail in his first attempt to build a fire, that is, if his feet are wet. If his feet are dry and he fails, he can run along the trail for half a mile and restore his circulation, but the circulation of wet and freezing feet cannot be restored by running when it is 75 below. 
no matter how fast he runs, the wet feet would freeze. All this the man knew. Already all sensation had gone out of his feet. To build the fire, he had been forced to remove his gloves, and the fingers had quickly gone numb. His pace of four miles an hour had kept his heart pumping blood to the surface of his body and to all the extremities, but the instant he stopped, the action of the pump eased down. The cold of outer space hit the unprotected tip of the planet, and he, being on that unprotected tip, received the full force of the blow. As long as he walked four miles an hour, he pumped that blood to the surface, but now it sank down into the recesses of his body. The extremities were the first to feel its absence. His wet feet froze faster, and his exposed fingers numbed the faster, though they had not yet begun to freeze. Nose and cheeks were already freezing, while the skin of all his body chilled as it lost its blood. But he was safe. Toes and nose and cheeks would be only touched by the frost, for the fire was beginning to burn with strength. He was feeding it with twigs the size of his finger. In another minute, he would be able to feed it with branches the size of his wrist, and then he could remove his wet footgear, and while it dried, he could keep his naked feet warm by the fire, rubbing them at first, of course, with snow. The fire was a success. He was safe. He had had the accident. He was alone. And he had saved himself. All a man had to do was keep his head, and he was all right. Any man who was a man could travel alone, but it was surprising the speed with which his cheeks and nose were freezing, and he had not thought his fingers could go lifeless in so short a time. Lifeless they were, for he could scarcely make them move together to grip a twig, and they seemed remote from his body and from him. When he touched a twig, he had to look and see whether or not he had hold of it. All of which counted for little. There was the fire, snapping and crackling, and promising life with every dancing flame. He started to untie his shoes. They were coated with ice. For a moment he tugged with his numbed fingers, then, realising the stupidity of it, he took out his knife. But before he could cut the strings, it happened. It was his own fault, or rather, his mistake. He should not have built the fire under the tree. He should have built it in the open. Now, the tree carried a weight of snow on its boughs. No wind had blown for weeks, and each bough was fully loaded. High up in the tree, one branch dropped its load of snow. This fell on the boughs beneath, capsizing them. This process continued, spreading out and involving the whole tree. It grew like an avalanche and descended without warning upon the man and the fire. And the fire was blotted out. Where it had burned was a pile of fresh and disordered snow.
man was shocked. It was as though he had just heard his own death sentence. For a moment, he sat and stared at the spot where the fire had been. If he had only had someone else with him, he would have been in no danger now. His trailmate could have built the fire. Well, it was up to him to build the fire over again, and this second time there must be no failure. Such were his thoughts, but he did not sit and think them. He was busy all the time they were passing through his mind. He made a new foundation for a fire, this time in the open, where no tree could put it out. Next, he gathered dry grasses and tiny twigs. He could not bring his fingers together to pull them out, but he was able to gather them by the handful. In this way, he got many rotten twigs and bits of green moss that were undesirable, but it was the best he could do. He worked methodically, even collecting an armful of the larger branches to be used later when the fire gathered strength, and all the while the dog sat and watched him, for it looked upon him as the fire provider, and the fire was slow in coming. When all was ready, the man reached in his pocket for a second piece of birch bark. He knew the bark was there, and, though he could not feel it with his fingers, he could hear its crisp rustling as he reached for it. Try as he would, he could not clutch hold of it, and all the time in his consciousness was the knowledge that each moment his feet were freezing. This thought put him in a panic, but he fought against it and kept calm. He pulled on his gloves with his teeth and moved his arms back and forth, beating his hands with all his might against his sides. He did this sitting down. He stood up to do it, and all the while the dog sat in the snow, its brush of a tail curled around warmly over its feet, its sharp ears pricked forward as it watched the man. And the man as he beat with his arms and hands, felt a surge of jealousy as he looked at the creature that was warm and secure in its natural covering. After a time, he was aware of the first faraway signals of sensation in his beaten fingers. The faint tingling grew stronger till it evolved into a stinging ache that was excruciating he stripped the glove from his right hand and fetched forth the birch bark. Next, he brought out his bunch of matches, but the tremendous cold had already driven the life out of his fingers. In his effort to separate one match from the others, the whole bunch fell in the snow. He tried to pick it out of the snow, but failed. The dead fingers could neither touch nor hold. He was very careful. He drove the thought of his freezing feet, nose and cheeks out of his mind, devoting his whole soul to the matches. He watched using the sense of vision in place of the sense of touch, and when he saw his fingers on each side of the bunch of matches, he closed them. He succeeded in getting one, which he dropped on his lap. He picked it up in his teeth and scratched it on his leg, Twenty times he scratched before he succeeded in lighting it. 
As it flamed, he held it with his teeth to the birch bark, but the burning brimstone went up his nostrils and into his lungs, causing him to cough. The match fell into the snow and went out. He beat his hands, but failed in exciting any sensation. Suddenly, he bared both hands, removing the gloves with his teeth. He caught the whole bunch of matches between his hands. Then he scratched the bunch along his leg. It flared into flame. Seventy matches at once. There was no wind to blow them out. He kept his head to one side to escape the strangling fumes and held the blazing bunch to the birch bark. As he held it, he became aware of sensation in his hand. His flesh was burning. He could smell it. Deep down below the surface, he could feel it. The sensation developed into pain that grew stronger, and still he endured it, holding the flame of the matches to the bark that would not light because his own burning hands were in the way, absorbing most of the flame. At last, when he could endure no more, he moved his hands apart. The blazing matches fell, sizzling into the snow, but the birch bark was alight. He began laying dry grasses and the tiniest twigs on the flame. He could not pick and choose, for he had to lift the fuel between the heels of his hands. Small pieces of rotten wood and green moss clung to the twigs, and he bit them off as well as he could with his teeth. He looked after the flame carefully. It meant life. It must not perish. The withdrawal of blood from the surface of his body now made him begin to shiver, and he grew more awkward. A large piece of green moss fell onto the fire. He tried to poke it out with his fingers, but his shivering body made him poke too far, and he disrupted the heart of the little fire, the burning grasses and tiny twigs separating and scattering. He tried to poke them together again, but his shivering got away with him, and the twigs were hopelessly scattered. Each twig gave off a puff of smoke and went out. The fire provider had failed. As he looked about him, his eyes chanced on the dog, sitting across the ruins of the fire from him, in the snow, making restless movements, slightly lifting one foot and then the other, shifting its weight back and forth. A certain fear of death came to the man. He realised that it was no longer a question of freezing his fingers and toes or of losing his hands and feet, but that it was a matter of life and death with the chances against him. This threw him into a panic, and he turned and ran along the old dim trail. The dog joined in behind and kept up with him. He ran blindly, without intention, in fear such as he had never known in his life. The running made him feel better. He did not shiver. Maybe if he ran on, his feet would thaw out and... Anyway, if he ran far enough, he would reach camp and the boys. Without doubt, he would lose some fingers and toes and some of his face, but the boys would take care of him and save the rest of him when he got there. 
And at the same time, there was another thought in his mind that said he would never get to the camp and the boys, that it was too many miles away, that the freezing had too great a start on him, and that he would soon be stiff and dead. This thought he kept in the background and refused to consider. Sometimes it pushed itself forward and demanded to be heard, but he pushed it back and tried to think of other things. It struck him as curious that he could run at all on feet so frozen that he could not feel them when they struck the earth and took the weight of his body. He seemed to himself to skim along above the surface and to have no connection with the earth. His theory of running until he reached camp had one problem. He lacked the endurance. Several times he fell. When he tried to rise, he failed. He must sit and rest, he decided, and next time he would merely walk and keep on going. As he sat and regained his breath, he noticed that he was feeling quite warm and comfortable. He was not shivering, and it even seemed that a warm glow had come to his chest. And yet, when he touched his nose or cheeks, there was no sensation. Running would not thaw them out, nor would it thaw out his hands and feet. He made another wild run along the trail. Once he slowed down to a walk, but the thought of freezing made him run again, and all the time the dog ran with him at his heels. When he fell down a second time, it curled its tail over its feet and sat in front of him. This time, the shivering came more quickly upon the man. He was losing in his battle with the frost. It was creeping into his body from all sides. The thought of it drove him on, but he ran no more than a hundred feet when he staggered and fell. It was his last panic. Well, he was bound to freeze anyway, and he might as well take it decently. With this newfound peace of mind came tiredness. A good idea, he thought, to fall asleep. It was like taking an anaesthetic. He pictured the boys finding his body next day. Suddenly, he imagined himself with them, coming along the trail and looking for himself. And still, with them, he came around a turn in the trail and found himself lying in the snow. He did not belong with himself anymore, for even then he was out of himself, standing with the boys and looking at himself in the snow. It certainly was cold, that was his thought. When he got back to the States, he could tell the folks what real cold was. Then the man drowsed off to what seemed to him the most comfortable and satisfying sleep he had ever known. The dog sat facing him and waiting. He began to whine. Later, the dog crept closely to the man and caught the smell of death. This made the animal back away. A little longer, it waited howling under the stars that leaped and danced 
and shone brightly in the cold sky. Then it turned and trotted up the trail in the direction of the camp it knew. <laughs>